today on Against the Grain, an Asian and Pacific Islander history-themed program highlighting 60s movement activism, Guam's indigenous population, and 19th century anti-Chinese pogroms. I'm CS. All that and more coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month isn't over yet. We commemorate it today in a program powered by selected interviews drawn from our archives. Later this hour, you'll hear about Asian American movement history, about what the militarization of Guam has done to that island's indigenous population, and about Julie Otsuka's award-winning novel about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. We begin with portions of a conversation I had with the author of a groundbreaking book called Driven Out, The Forgotten War Against Chinese Americans. Jean Feltzer is professor of English and Asian Studies at the University of Delaware. Her book documents a campaign of anti-Chinese pogroms, purges, and ethnic cleansing in 19th century California and the Pacific Northwest. Here, Jean Feltzer, who joined this program in December 2007, describes what happened in Eureka, California. On a cold and dreary Friday night in February of 1885, about 10 days ahead of that year's Lunar New Year. Two Chinese men shot at each other. The Chinese people in Eureka knew that Lunar New Year was coming, and they had gone to the police and said, gamblers are going to come up from San Francisco during Lunar New Year celebrations, and we want the same protection in our community that the whites have, and the police ignored them. And in fact, there was a shooting right on the edge of Chinatown, which was just one square block in downtown Eureka. Two Chinese men shot at each other, and tragically, they killed a guy named David Kendall, who was a member of the city council. And Within 20 minutes, a a race riot against the Chinese-Americans in Eureka began. And what happened during that riot, and what demands were placed upon the Chinese residents of Eureka? Within 20 minutes, 600 white men gathered in an old building, Centennial Hall, and the gas lights were lit. And the meeting was chaired by the mayor of the town. The town sheriff comes into the meeting and says that David Kendall had, in fact, died. And the first motion was to massacre all of the Chinese in Eureka. And finally, an agreement was made that a committee would go into Chinatown and tell all of the residents of Eureka's Chinatown that they had to be out by 3 o'clock the next afternoon. And so on that very dark and frightening night, all of the Chinese families in Eureka's Chinatown packed as much as they could. Vigilantes were going out into the redwood forest and seizing any Chinese woodcutters or cooks who worked at the lumber camp, dragging them back to town, dragging them down to the wharf. The sheriff corralled all the wagons he could to take the Chinese people's possessions also down to the wharf. And by early that Saturday morning, a very slow march from Chinatown to the few blocks down to the wharf along Humboldt Bay began. Um, The merchants' wives couldn't manage the march, and some of them were put into the wagons. And the Chinese population 
of Eureka and the surrounding areas was held under guard in the warehouse of the steamship company down at the wharf in Eureka. And where were they taken? Humboldt Bay is a low-draft bay, and they were put on little junks or barges and carried out to two steamships that happened to be in Humboldt Bay. And that took hours and hours. And by the time the Chinese people were jammed onto these tiny steamships, it was very late at night, the tide had gone out, and they had to wait till Sunday morning to sail. So they were kept on board the steamships all night. And I believe the steamships left for San Francisco, correct? The, the steamships sailed for San Francisco. They left early Sunday morning when the tide came in, and the wind was coming from the north. And the Chinese people on board the two steamships reached San Francisco very early on Monday morning. The Custom House was closed for the weekend. The telegraph wires were down from a winter storm, and no one in San Francisco knew what had happened over that fateful weekend in Eureka. With the Custom House closed, the Chinese rush off the the ships and go as quickly as they can into the safety of San Francisco's Chinatown. Eureka's Chinatown, as I understand it, had more than 200 residents. So it was a, you know, fairly large, uh, maybe people wouldn't assume it to be so large in the late 1800s, a fairly large community in Eureka. What happened to Eureka's Chinatown after its residents were expelled? The Chinese in Eureka were not allowed to own property. And a big dividing line of what happened to Chinese people in the various towns where these pogroms occurred had to do whether or not they were permitted to own property in the town. The Chinese people in Eureka rented from the man who owned the stables and actually lived down the road. And he was very concerned because the Chinese had legal leases for the property that they rented. But very quickly, Chinatown was demolished and rebuilt, and ultimately those leases were never honored. And while, Jean, many people may never have visited Eureka and might not even have heard about Eureka until 10 minutes ago, mm-hmm. um, there were other expulsions of Chinese from other towns and cities that, you know, might strike people as more prominent and as uh, as more important. One of those might be Tacoma, Washington, which ordered its Chinese population to leave in November 1885. In a nutshell, what happened there? Tacoma, Washington, rid the town of all of its Chinese people in about four hours. Four hours. In about four hours, the all of the whistles in the foundries in town were orchestrated to go off at nine o'clock in the morning, and it was a signal to the vigilantes that the free for all could begin. And they rushed into Chinatown and looted Chinatown. There were really two Chinatowns in Tacoma. One was more for fishermen and railroad workers along the docks and one was the Merchant's Chinatown, more in the center of town. And the vigilantes routed Chinatown, gathered up all of the Chinese people, and took them on a forced march nine miles through the mud to a railroad crossing way out of town, a railroad crossing that they had built. And there they stayed for a cold night. The trains came by, came through the railroad crossing, and those who could afford the $6 ticket bought tickets toward Portland, Oregon. Those without jumped on the freight cars, and most of the Chinese people from Tacoma began the 140-mile trek from Tacoma south to Portland, Oregon and were seen for days and days along the tracks. What did Tacoma's 
officials and civic leaders do to prevent or stop this from happening? They watched it. They encouraged it. The committee that orchestrated it included the mayor of Tacoma, the head of the YMCA, probate judges, wealthy business leaders. This was not a working-class-led event. It was led by the leaders of the town. Your work shows the collaboration of working-class organizations and business interests in anti-Chinese activities. To what extent did these working class groupings, um, specifically the Working Men's Party and the Knights of Labor, see the Chinese as a competitive threat to jobs that they wanted? I think that that's an important but only one explanation for the anti-Chinese violence and for the pogroms. It's often been read as a fear of job competition that Chinese people were taking jobs away from white people. This was a very poor time in the United States with wave after wave of economic depression. The Industrial Revolution that had been built up during the Civil War was sort of, after the war, all dressed up with nowhere to go. And while we were then an industrial society, there wasn't a consumer base for all this stuff. And you see wave after wave of economic depression. Meanwhile, people are coming from Ireland, from Eastern Europe, from Germany, and they come with these visions of jobs and a better life. And those jobs are not to be had. And one explanation is they turn on the Chinese for taking their jobs. I don't think that works as a full explanation because most of the jobs taken by the Chinese were jobs that white people were refusing. Jobs in the service sector, in the laundries, in the restaurants, and later on in the fields. The same jobs that immigrants take today were the jobs that the Chinese were taking in the 19th century. These weren't necessarily traditionally Chinese jobs. The Chinese didn't come here skilled in, in laundry work. So then what else, what other explanation might there be in addition to working class fears? I think that part of the hostility toward Chinese people by white people is that their lives were so much alike rather than so much, than so different. Everybody was suffering in the West. There wasn't healthy food. Um, you see many cartoons of Chinese people eating rats, for example. Everybody was grubbing and eating rodents at times, if that's all that was available. Everybody was dirty. There was very you know, basic housing. It was very hard for people to keep clean. There were very few, not only Chinese women, there were very few white women. Both white men and Chinese men were living in bachelor societies. And I believe that there was a commonality in people's lives and that many white vigilantes looked at the Chinese and saw themselves and saw their own disappointed dreams and projected it onto the Chinese, their own anger and disappointment at their own lives. Later in the interview, Jean Feltzer shared this story about resistance to anti-Chinese violence in the city of San Jose. San Jose's Chinatown had been burnt to the ground six times. The last time was in 1880. And that time, the Chinese decide to rebuild out of brick, very much like the kid's story, where you can't burn down the brick. And they circle Chinatown, the walls of their new brick Chinatown, with barbed wire. And they only have a couple of entrances so that they can control who comes in and out of Chinatown to protect their community in San Jose. And... The mayor of San Jose hires some thugs 
to go into Chinatown and harass the Chinese people and any white people who had gone there to shop or to pray or to go to the opera or to gamble. And the Chinese bring suit against the mayor um, for trespass, but the trespass action is actually an action against police harassment. And they win that action, and Chinatown in downtown San Jose endures. Jean Feltzer, University of Delaware professor, discussing her book, Driven Out, The Forgotten War Against Chinese Americans. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. We move now to 20th century Asian American activism, the subject of a book by Karen Ishizuka called Serve the People, Making Asian America in the Long 60s. Karen Ishizuka was part of the Asian American movement in Los Angeles. She's also a documentary film producer and museum curator. Here are portions of a conversation I had with Karen in December 2017. When did the shift from Oriental to Asian American happen, and and for what reasons? Well, I think this was part and parcel of what we wanted to do. I think that Oriental signified many things. One of not being American, uh, being exotic, um, not belonging, of being stereotyped. There are so many uh, stereotypes that were connected with the concept of Oriental all the way from Fu Manchu to Charlie Chan. So the Orientalizing kind of kept us, you know, sort of, you know, within a stereotypical range from as as seen by the outside. And part of the uh, shedding of that kind of one-dimensional stereotype to becoming a more multi-dimensional political entity. So the change from Oriental to Asian American really came about during this time. So if you see the very early organizations, they continued to use, they still use the term Oriental because that's all we had. So there was a a group called Oriental Concern, um, Oriental Student Union up in Seattle, But I think very quickly after the Asian American Political Alliance in Berkeley in 68, the whole concept of Asian American in the terminology was found to be a lot more appropriate. You know, there was an emphasis on us being American and shedding some of the old stereotypes that went along with being Oriental. Amy Uematsu, she wrote a college paper with the title The Emergence of Yellow Power. You write that it became the most anthologized article on the Asian American movement. What did Uematsu contend in that paper? You know, Amy, with The Emergence of Yellow Power, she really identified four main concepts that really kind of were the cornerstones of this sort of burgeoning movements, both intellectual and philosophical underpinnings. So first was the concept of identity. Richard Aoki, who was both a Black Panther and an APA spokesman, he had indicated that, you know, Oriental is a rug and we are not Orientals, we're Asian Americans. So if you don't have your own identity, he was indicating you really can't go on to own yourself and to exert your own power. Um, The second notion that Amy identified was really that, just that, the power, you know, coming into power personally and politically, and that the sort of the normalization of inequality that was in the term oriental it had kind of led to an acquiescence on the part of Asian Americans to maintain sort of their minority status. Um, third was having a united front of being part of a third world revolution um, or third world solidarity. And I think that's really important that it wasn't just Asians for Asians. You know, like I said, it was not really 
started out or intended to be an uh, Asian pride, an ethnic pride, so much as a coalition and a standing with other people of color and recognizing our commonality and our common substrata within a white-dominated culture. You locate the beginning of a nationwide Asian American movement in the late 1960s and early 1970s. What, in addition to this consensus around using the term Asian American, what else happened to to get things going for this national movement? So, you know, at the beginning, there was never one um, leader that went around the country um, proselytizing Asian America. I think that one of the interesting phenomena of this movement was what I call spontaneous arisings of people from different parts of the country at the same time, as well as different types of people. Now, I think that most Asian American studies and most of the times we think of the Asian American movement being a student movement. And certainly that is so. Uh, The 1968 Third World Strike, both at UC Berkeley and San Francisco State, were very much led in many ways by Asian Americans. That was a big watershed moment for other people seeing uh, Asian Americans as a as a political force rather than just as Orientals, so to speak. But before that, there were were people that the historian Eric Hobsbawm had called social bandits. They were basically street people who were hemmed in by social and economic forces that they didn't completely understand and which they had no control, but they knew that something was wrong. So it really started out as um, many of the gangs uh, in Los Angeles, San Francisco, in New York. Those were sort of the precursors of activists who saw that Asian Americans were also discriminated against and not given a voice. So they did it from from the streets, from the outside. You know, I, I quote, you know, Russell Valparaiso, who now lives in, in Hawaii, that, you know, he, he just felt that he, he, he says, when you're a minority, some people go backwards. They close their eyes to everything, but not me. I wasn't that kind, the kind of guy that was a bully, but I wasn't going to be pushed around. And he ends it by saying, we dreamed of being good gangsters. So, you know, in many ways, it was like the Robin Hood of um, the street code of taking care of your own because they realized that they couldn't rely on the establishment to do that. So they were the precursors to the so-called activists that we know and that uh, manifested as uh, student activists. The Asian American Political Alliance, or AAPA, was founded at UC Berkeley in 1968. What was the significance, what is the significance of, of that organization and what it was doing back then? The Asian American Political Alliance, they called themselves APA, it was really the first group to unify under the banner of Asian American. The One of the founders, Yuji Ichioka, had indicated that there were many solitary Asians out in political demonstrations, um, but there wasn't any attempt to organize them under the banner of Asian American. So they started that, and APA quickly became a vehicle, and there was never any uh, formal chapters, but APA's Asian American Political Alliances started forming on campuses um, throughout the country, actually. Uh, But it was really an, an important organization that really gave like I said, the words, you know, Asian American, and started identifying the, the reasons for the, the term Asian American. 
And uh, Filipinos, they had an interesting and somewhat turbulent, at least at the beginning, relationship with the term Asian Americans. Did they feel comfortable within that movement? I think that that was, and I think it continues to be, something that we need to be very understanding of and aware and of where it's not just East Asians anymore that are the majority of uh, Asian Americans in this country. So, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book and I think that is important to understand is that Filipinos themselves, you know, didn't consider themselves Asian and uh, weren't part of that whole orientalizing in many ways. Uh, and yet they, of course, were very much um, felt the same um discrimination and racism of uh, white white supremacy. It had been something that had been written about very early on. There was even a book later um, by Fred Cordova in Seattle who called his book the Filipinos, the Forgotten Asian Americans. You know, the, one of the main reasons was that um, you know, that they were so different uh, in our in history was that they had been a subjugated colony, you know, first of Spain and then of the United States for some 400 years. So, you know, they were really, you know, we felt ourselves as internally colonized in the United States, but they were actually colonized subjects. And so they were really, they had really different federal categories over the years that um, really stripped them of much of their identity as either Filipinos or Americans. Um, they were considered U.S. nationals, which, you know, meant that they owed allegiance to the United States, but they didn't have the rights of citizens. So they were in this really trying and very different status of being neither citizen um, nor alien, so to speak. And, uh, and yet the Philippine army was incorporated into the U.S. Army. So the Filipinos really have, you know, a really important uh, history in and of themselves. They were definitely part of an Asian American movement, but something that I think forced and uh, challenged all of us to expand even the concept of Asian American to become Asian Pacific Islanders. So, you know, in the in the late 60s, it's really... API rather than Asian American was um, was a much more accurate term to reflect the inclusion of uh, Filipinos, Samoans, Tongans, Guamanians, other um, other Pacific Islanders. That's Karen Ishizuka talking about her book *Serve the People: Making Asian America in the Long Sixties. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. And today we are marking Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month with highlights from our archives. You just heard Karen mention Guamanians, a word we don't often hear that relates to an island that gets little attention. Guam is so small, 212 square miles, that it often doesn't show up on world maps. Craig Santos Perez is an indigenous Chamorro from Guam. He's written about the militarization of the island, and its impact on the Chamorro people. Craig Santos Perez is a poet, critic, artist, and activist, and a professor in the English department at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. He joined Against the Grain in July 2016 to discuss his book of poetry called From Unincorporated Territory, Guma. Here are portions of that conversation. Your grandfather was in the U.S. military. Your dad was in the U.S. military. What's going on here? Why the uh, the attraction to that particular occupation? Well, there are several reasons. A lot of it is economic. It's one of the major employers on Guam besides the tourism industry. And so a lot of Chamorros see this as a way, you know, to kind of move up in the world to have a steady income. Of course, it also creates opportunities for, for travel, to develop different skills. And so that's one of the major reasons economic. It also, because Chamorros have been joining the military for several generations now, it becomes genealogical. 
where you know you see your grandfather do it your father do it there becomes this familial pressure to also enlist and to kind of carry on that legacy a lot of scholars of of chamorro studies point as well to world war ii where guam was occupied by the japanese military for three years and in 1944 the u.s returned and so-called liberated the island from japanese occupation and so there's scholars argue that there's a sense of gratitude that that particular generation feels to the U.S. military because the, the Japanese occupation was quite brutal. And so we often view enlistment as payment towards this debt of liberation. It's payment toward a debt. And yet, as you, in a sense, document in this book of poems, a lot of people from the island of Guam have died, have died in combat as part of the U.S. military. That's right. So we have some of the highest enlistment rates of any state or territory. We have some of the highest, you know, of course, killed in action rates as a result. We have some of the highest rates of, you know, portion of population that's actually a part of the military. So pretty much every family has someone who's in the military. And so what happens is, you know, there becomes a way that this becomes part of the culture, becomes part of our everyday landscape. It becomes normal and natural. Sadly, one of the effects besides the loss of many sons and daughters who die in in the various wars over the decades is that our veterans, when they come back home, they don't really get the treatment they need. So besides being one of the highest enlistment rates, we also have the lowest rate per spending uh, per veteran on island. And and veteran health care back home is, is in desperate need of some funding because a lot of our veterans are just coming back, you know, with PTSD, with other health issues, and, and they're not being treated with the kind of respect that I think, you know, they deserve. Can you talk about the the demographics of Guam and the proportion of people on Guam who are indigenous Chamorro and what's happened to that population? There are about 175,000 people on Guam, about 35 to 40 percent are Chamorro, so between like 75, 80,000. Chamorros are still the single largest population group on island, although overall we are already outnumbered by other by other settler groups that have come to island. This has been a major shift in a very short amount of time. So before World War II, maybe about 90% of the island was Chamorro. The population was, was very small, about less than 23,000 or so. Since 1962, where there was a security clearance, I was on the island, so you couldn't really leave or or enter without Navy permission. So when that was lifted, there was an influx of people coming to Guam, but then that also initiated uh, out-migration, mainly through the military as well. So, you know, military enlistment is actually the the main vehicle of Chamorro migration over the last centuries, people joining the military and then being stationed elsewhere and bringing their families. And, you know, I talk about this a little bit in the book, but with every decade, we've seen more and more Chamorros leave island so that at at this point, at least from census records from 2010, there's about an equal number of Chamorros who live off island and on island. And so that out-migration has been, you know, has caused a lot of different kinds of effects. You know, one, it's kind of, you know, a lot of, Culture has been lost, I think, because a lot of people leave. And so, you know, the Chamorro presence is not as everyday as it used to be. There's, of course, a a loss of political power as well. There's a loss of connection to the land and the environment. And there's a lot of disconnection between families. So, you know, almost every family now, besides having, you know, members in the military, have members who are off-island. And so even for myself, you know, I have... My grandmother and a lot of aunties and uncles still live back in Guam, but then, you know, some live in Hawaii, some live in California. On both my parents' families, you know, they have brothers and sisters who live all over the states. And so, you know, at this point, the Chamorro population, at least according to the 2000 census, is is described as the most dispersed of all the Pacific populations because you could find Chamorros, you know, in Guam and, and in every single state, even in Puerto Rico. And so from, you know, just in the last 50 years where almost all Chamorros lived in our archipelago, 
now we, we've seen just a vast migration outward. You've already referred to the issue of land and how the, that planned military buildup announced in 2009 that would take land, ancestral land, sacred land, and put it to military use. How much of the island does the U.S. military currently occupy, and how much has this land grabbing affected indigenous rights and indigenous land possession? Well, the military bases occupy about a third of the island at this point, and it displaced a lot of people from their, their ancestral homelands. And once you remove people from the land, that creates a spiraling intergenerational effect. And so, of course, you remove them from you know, their food sources, often if they were, were growing fruit trees or raising animals. You remove them from their subsistence living, and so they're often pushed into the wage economy. And in order to survive in that wage economy, you know, of course, you have to learn English. And oftentimes that meant that you had to join the military if that was the only job available or to enter the tourism industry. And so, you know, not only removes people from a spiritual connection to the land, from a sense of, of caring for the land, from that ethics of sustainability that, you know, if you're going to feed yourself and your family, you have to care for the land. You have to love it. You have to you know, respect it as an ancestor, as kin, as home and shelter and sustenance. But when you're removed from that, you're also removed from those ethics. And, you know, that has a generational effect as well. And I think part of that, I would argue, is is linked to our migration statistics as well, where, you know, before many members of a family can live on one plot of family land that was taken care of. But once that land is taken away, then all those family members have to find other ways to support themselves. So then they often become separated. You know, there's one scholar who describes land as as kind of the soul of Chamorro culture. And, you know, the military has kind of taken that soul away from us. And so, so much of Chamorro decolonial activism, demilitarization, and sovereignty is based on land struggles. And there's been a long history of of trying to reclaim the land and there have been, you know, small victories, but still that, you know, one third of the island is taken and the island is small enough where there's, you know, causes real estate prices to be really high, causes other kinds of urban problems as well. What do we need to know about what military landfills and the disposal of military wastes onshore and offshore has done to people, to wildlife, to ecology? Devastation. Yeah, the U.S. military has devastated the ecology of Guam in several different ways. One of of the most well-known is that brown tree snakes were introduced to the island aboard these military ships sometime after World War II. There were not any of these kinds of snakes on island before. And so the snakes colonized the island in a very short matter of time, they basically wiped out our entire bird population so that you don't find any of the native birds in the wild anymore. And our birds that survived are all kept in captivity. They're the species survival plan. So if you want to see native birds, you have to go to the zoo or to certain Department of Agriculture compounds where, they're, where they do these really strict breeding programs. And they, you know then they become these kind of tourist attractions at these different U.S. zoos from from the National Zoo to the Chicago Zoo to San Diego. And so that's one thing. We lost a lot of these birds, and the loss of the birds has created the spiraling effect in the ecology where now we have higher rate of spiders on island than than other islands as well because the birds used to eat the spiders. Of course, birds spread seeds, and so now we're losing our native tree population as a result. So that's one of the kind of spiraling effects. In terms of just military waste, Guam has a large number of what they call Superfund sites. These are some of the most toxic military sites. There was the storage of Agent Orange and Agent Purple during the Vietnam War. So a lot of those contaminants went into the water and into the soil. What's scary is that we're still learning about all the contaminants that have been in the ground, in the water, in the air, for the past hundred years. 
Guam has really high rates of cancer, other kind of neurodegenerative diseases. The military has also affected our body ecologies, our health. And so, you know, they introduced a lot of U.S. foods, a lot of canned goods that were part of you know, these kind of militarized foods, these disaster foods that were brought in post-World War II when, when the U.S. bombed a lot of the island in the battle with, with the Japanese military. So spam is no laughing matter here? That's right. Spam is, is not a laughing matter. And our peoples became hooked to these imported foods. You know, also that relates to land displacement, because if you can't grow your food anymore, you still got to eat. And if that's the only options you have, it just becomes part of your body. And we have really high rates of diabetes, heart disease, obesity. And it's, it's getting to kind of a crisis, precarious level, both on our physical bodies as well as our natural environments. What do you think self-determination would look like, should look like for the people of Guam? What would it require? Well, it would require first and foremost the, the deoccupation of our island, you know, which would essentially mean that the U.S. military would, would have to leave and return that land either into a trust or to the original landowners. You know, there's no reason why that land cannot be, you know, rehabilitated because as we know, you know, ecologies are resilient. And, you know, right now we import about 90% of the food. There's no reason why we can't feed ourselves, why we can't grow our own food because we did for thousands of years. And so those are, you know, two things that are very important. It's like land and then being able to subsist on our own. You know, from there, of course, there, there are other things in which we can determine how our resources are going to be used to determine whether tourism is our best industry. You know, we could determine uh, land use practices. We could determine, you know, different kinds of immigration laws, you know, where tech dollars should be spent, other kinds of programs that will maybe bring our people back home. But, you know, ultimately self-determination, you know, begins with education as well. So I think kind of reforming the education system, thinking about indigenous-based education so that people understand that colonization is not, you know, the only or most natural or normal form of life, that there are other possibilities. And that what independence might mean is that, you know, we control our own destiny and that we control our future. The poet, critic, and English professor Craig Santos Perez speaking with me shortly after his book From Unincorporated Territory, Guma, came out. You are listening to Against the Grain. My name is C.S. Song. Julio Tsuka's award-winning debut novel, When the Emperor Was Divine, is about the incarceration of a Japanese-American family during World War II. Specifically, a Berkeley resident is forced, along with her 10-year-old daughter and 8-year-old son, to go and live in a prison camp in Topaz, Utah. When Julie Otsuka joined me to talk about her novel in January 2004, I asked her to read from her book. Here's an excerpt. It's from the middle chapter, which takes place in the camp in Utah. Um, and like you said, it's told from the young boy's point of view. He's eight, and they've just recently arrived at the camp. Um, they had been assigned to a room in a barrack in a block not far from the fence. The boy, the girl, their mother. Inside, there were three iron cots and a pot-bellied stove and a single bare bulb that hung down from the ceiling. A table made out of crate wood on top of a rough wooden shelf an old Zenith radio they had brought with them on the train from California, a tin clock, a jar of paper flowers, a box of salt. Tacked to the wall beside a small window, a picture of Joe DiMaggio torn from a magazine. There was no running water, and the toilets were a half block away. Far away on the other side of the ocean, there was fighting, and at night the boy lay awake on his straw mattress and listened to the bulletins on the radio. Sometimes in the darkness he heard noises drifting from other rooms, the heavy thud of footsteps, the shuffling of cards. 
over and over again the creaking of springs. He heard a woman whispering, lower, lower there, and a man with a high voice singing, Alvira Zane, sweetheart, Alvira Zane. Someone said, just say sayonara, Frank. Someone said, bonsoir. Someone said, please, shut up, please. Someone else belched. There was a window above the boy's bed, and outside were the stars and the moon and the endless rows of black barracks all lined up in the sand. In the distance, a wide, empty field where nothing but sagebrush grew, then the fence and the high wooden towers. There was a guard in each tower, and he carried a machine gun and binoculars, and at night he manned the searchlight. He had brown hair and green eyes, or maybe they were blue, and he had just come back from a tour of the Pacific. On their first day in the desert, his mother had said, Be careful, do not touch the barbed wire fence, she had said, or talk to the guards in the towers, do not stare at the sun. And remember, never say the emperor's name out loud. The boy wore a blue baseball cap, and he did not stare at the sun. He often wandered the fire break with his head down and his hands in his pockets looking for seashells and old Indian arrowheads in the sand. Some days he saw rattlesnakes sleeping beneath the sagebrush. Some days he saw scorpions. Once he came across a horse skull bleached white by the sun. Another time an old man in a red silk kimono with a tin pail in his hand who said he was going down to the river. Whenever the boy walked past the shadow of a guard tower, he pulled his cap down low over his head and tried not to say the word, but sometimes it slipped out anyway. Hirohito, Hirohito, Hirohito. He said it quietly, quickly. He whispered it. What I found interesting was, and it comes out very clearly in your novel, that the onus was on them when they came out. It wasn't on the people who had put them away for three and a half years. It was on them to behave properly. I'm reading from your novel about a lecture they got in the mess hall in Topaz, Utah, before they left the camp. It was a lecture on how to behave in the outside world. Mm -hmm. Speak only English. Do not walk down the street in groups of more than three. Do not draw attention to yourselves in any way. You know, be very polite. Don't don't ruffle any feathers. This idea that this whole uh, group of people, after suffering as much as they did, it was the onus on them to do the right thing and to act properly when they got back to society. Right. And I think, actually, the anti-Japanese sentiment after the war was even greater than before, um, which just made it even worse, really, as, as a place to have to come back to. Um, I think... Towards the end of the war, you were getting um, in the newspapers reports of the atrocities in uh, the POW camps that were run by Japan, um, just torture of GIs. And um, I think that uh, 1945, I think it was a very difficult time to return to, you know, quote-unquote, the world. Um, so I think it was dangerous, actually, and there were, you know, there were instances of um, drive-by shootings and of Japanese being attacked, of houses being burned down. It was an extremely hostile environment that they returned to. Can you read another passage from your novel? Sure. Um, this is a passage from the fourth chapter, and it's told in the voice of the girl and the boy together. And it's uh, 1945, September. They've just returned to Berkeley from uh, Topaz, Utah. Later on in the evening, we turned on the radio and heard one of the same programs we had listened to before the war, the Green Hornet. And it was as if we had never been away at all. Nothing's changed, we said to ourselves. The war had been an interruption, nothing more. We would pick up our lives where we had left off and go on. We would go back to school again. We would study hard every day to make up for lost time. We would seek out our old classmates. Where were you, they'd asked, or maybe they would just nod and say, hey. We would join their clubs after school if they let us. We would listen to their music. We would dress just like they did. We would change our names to sound more like theirs, and if our mother called out to us in the street by our real names, we would turn away and pretend not to know her. We would never be mistaken for the enemy again. The town seemed much the same as before. Grove Street was still Grove and Tyler Street still Tyler. The pharmacy was still there at the end of the block, only now it had a new sign. The mornings were still foggy. The parks were still green. Swings still hung down from the trees. Swings will always hang down from the trees. And children, well-fed, laughing with their heads tossed back into the wind, still swung. 
the girls on the street still wore black Mary Janes. Their mothers still wore black pumps. The old man in the rumpled gray fedora was still standing at the corner calling out for his lost dog, Isadora, who had run away long, long ago. Perhaps he is standing there still. In the windows of the houses on our block, we saw the faces of our old friends and neighbors, the Gilroys and the Myers, the Leahys, the Wongs, the two elderly Miss O'Grady's from whose yard not a single toss ball had ever been returned. They had all seen us leave at the beginning of the war, had peered out through their curtains as we walked down the street with our enormous overstuffed suitcases. But none of them came out that morning to wish us goodbye or good luck or ask us where it was we were going. We didn't know. None of them waved. They're afraid, our mother had said, keep on walking. Hold your head up. Whatever you do, don't look back. Now when we ran into these same people on the street, they turned away and pretended not to see us. Or they nodded in passing and said, gorgeous day, as though we had not been away at all. Once in a while, someone would stop and ask our mother where we had been. Haven't seen you for a while, that person might say, or it's been ages. And our mother simply lifted her head and smiled and replied, oh, away. Julie Otsuka, reading from her novel, When the Emperor Was Divine. Julie's grandfather, like the father in her novel, was arrested by the FBI in her grandfather's case the day after Pearl Harbor and sent to various camps designated for dangerous enemy aliens. That was the designation. Julie's mother, grandmother, and uncle were incarcerated for three and a half years in Topaz, Utah. And that wraps up today's glimpse into Asian Pacific Islander American history. This is CS suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>